crisp mountain air and an even crisper early morning lake dip were the order of the day at Monocle's The Chiefs, a high-altitude conference in St. Moritz earlier this month. After months cooped up at home, guests and panellists alike gathered to be together and exchange ideas. After a chance to mingle on a classic train carriage snaking through the mountains from Schur to St. Moritz, it was time to assemble in the Souvretta House Hotel for discussions on how we look to the future in clever and inspiring ways. On this special edition of The Chiefs, we present a selection of highlights from the first edition of The Chiefs Conference. On our first panel of the day at the conference, we looked at the new world of risk. Our panellists were Ambassador Palvi Puli, Switzerland's Finnish-born Head of Security Policy at the Federal Department of Defence, Civil Protection and Sport, and UBS's Head of Investment Risk, Dirk Effenberger. Ambassador Puli looked ahead to the Swiss referendum on fighter jets and told us what this means for the country's security strategy. We are having a very important vote on the fighter aircraft next week for the simple reason that we want to continue to protect our airspace, protect the population infrastructure and the uh, aircraft fleet that we have currently, they are ageing and they need to be replaced by the end of this decade. And unless we do that, we just won't have an air force and without an air force, an armed force is a crippled armed forces and we think it's necessary. And why is it necessary? We get in during the campaign, we get this question very often, who is threatening Switzerland? And quite clearly, we're not expecting, not even in a 20 or 30 years, that stable democracies, our neighbours like France or Germany, would be shelling us or engaging in aggressive warfare with Switzerland. But as we have seen lately with the pandemic, COVID-19, things can boil very quickly into unexpected situations. Of course, there's no intention there. But what we do see also as a result of the pandemic is that international tensions are rising international rivalry between big power states is rising, the temperature is much higher than before, and anything really can happen. When we look at the span of time, how long these aircraft will be flying, it's about 30, 40 years, and we will procure them in 10 years because it's a long project to buy some aircraft. It's it's quite tricky. We just can't predict what's going to happen. And we want to be, maybe one last thing about why we really want to have this aircraft is that we want to be, as a neutral country, keep ourselves out of conflicts, armed conflicts. And if you have performing fighter aircraft, you send a signal internationally that you will not tolerate incursion into the airspace. Can I ask you, just a follow-up, I know that you've said that your job is to plan for risk that's low probability, but that if it happens, has a huge impact. Do you think that the COVID issue has helped you in a way that when you go to the Swiss public and ask them whether they want to buy these planes, because it's all done by going out to Swiss people and asking them to put their mark on a piece of paper, do you think they're more willing to realise now that the world is riskier than perhaps even they thought just six months ago? Well, yes and no. Uh, First thing we felt after this uh, pandemic, and it's still going on, is that there's more debate on how to uh, make better use of money. And of course, there's a lot of competition for the six billion francs we are planning to spend on the aircraft. So this question came up, would it not be more sensible to spend the money in economy, in recovery, uh, in health system? And this was a tough climb actually in the beginning. At the same time, we had for the first time in Swiss history, since the Second World War, we had the largest mobilization of the armed forces. Up to 8,000 people were ready to help the health system, civilian infrastructure, and they were engaged and deployed about 3,500 military personnel, which really helped 
in a subsidiary way, the authorities. And this, of course, was a very good, I hesitate to say marketing issue, but it really showed (laughs) that the armed forces can be there when you need them in a variety of tasks. So that was a positive thing. Ambassador Pelvi Pulley. Shortly after that, we came back to ground level to look at another burning topic of the day that certainly devoured column inches and impacted business leaders and designers across the board. The future of the office. To get to grips with what this might actually look like, Nora Fellbaum, CEO of Swiss furniture giant Vitra, took to the stage. That was a question around, will there still be offices? So I think, yes, there will be, but not every office has a reason for being in the future. So let me give you the pro argument and then the con. The pro argument, the one that really sticks with me, is if you think pre-COVID, the last 10 years, we've seen this rise in the freelance economy. I'm sure you've all observed it, maybe also in your company. People wanted more freedom. Companies didn't want to employ people. So this freelance economy just went through the roof. And where did these people work? Did they work from home, most of them? A lot of them went to shared workspaces. So at the same time as we've seen a rise in freelance economy, we've seen a rise of shared workspaces. The Regis's, Spaces, the WeWorks and all of that, yeah? So if there wasn't a need for the office, why would people go and actually pay not very little money to be in a workspace where they probably actually don't know many people? You know, it's not that they're going there to collaborate, they're going to focus or because it drives them or because they have the routine or something, yeah? So that's, for me, that's a big argument pro. But again, it's a free decision. It's a conscious decision. I think there's some offices that are just inhumane. And if I think about, I visited my team in London three or four weeks ago and the subway was empty. I mean, it was really actually quite scary. And uh, we were in the city of London where you have all these high rises and You know, usually thousands of people go there every day and they get on a subway, they commute for an hour, then they enter these buildings with, you know, 5,000 other people. And then they sit there for eight hours. And usually that's where the bunny stable came in or the chicken battery or whatever. There's no daylight. There's a battery of desks. They're actually often not even collaborating with each other, but they're sitting behind a screen, which is something that you can frankly do from anywhere. And then at the end of the day, they go take the elevator down and take the subway home again for an hour. I mean, I don't think it's that surprising that people are struggling to get employees back into this sort of environment. That's going to be tough now that people were able to stay at home, save two hours of commute, have daylight and a lot more time with their family. So I think it's not the question, will there be an office or not? It's what type of questions, what do you offer there? And where are those offices? Do they need to be in central London or are they more spread out? There was actually a comment by Eric Schmidt from Google who said that Google is thinking more of a hubs and spokes system where you don't have one office in San Francisco for 10,000 people or even one campus for I don't know how many thousand, but you have, you know, in neighborhoods around where also rents are lower. As we look at these slides going past, it reminds me of something we've been hearing a lot from COOs, CFOs at the moment, and they talk about, you know, the importance of people and people are so important and people make the place and they make the brand. But I'm wondering, is there also an argument, that's the fashionable one, but what about placemaking people? That if... I go into a fantastically designed office. Do I sit up, not just because I'm in this chair, but do I sit up a little bit straighter? I am proud of showing 
my friend comes and visits, a colleague comes and visits, there's an amazing lobby. I've got a fantastic collaborative space uh, where I work with my colleagues. Do we need to be putting more value on place and good place design in terms of, I guess, informing culture and potentially attracting talent? Short answer, in my opinion, yes, but that's obvious. So at Vitro, we believe that our surroundings influence everything we do. Every minute, every day, we are influenced. These things, they signal something. They signal a certain quality. They signal you know, that aesthetics are important or not important. And I think every company will have to take a decision for itself. What are our values? What do we want people to think and feel every day when they, clients, but also employees, when they go through our environments? Are aesthetics important to us? Maybe not. Maybe I'm running a company that is super cost conscious and everything I want people to think about is to reduce costs and get my clients the cheapest offer ever. Maybe a vitro environment is not for them. Maybe actually they shouldn't invest in a fantastic environment. Maybe they should not have an office at all in the future because it's the cheapest. You know, have everybody work from home and come together once a year and, I don't know, at the barbecue. Who wants to apply to that company <laughs> in the room? No, but there are many companies out there that function by those values. So it's not one answer for everybody. But if you believe you have, you know, a brand to sell and you have customers to excite and you maybe have a certain premium offer, then I think your office should really matter to you. And that's the exciting thing about these times. So the order book, not so great right now, but that's okay. We're a family business. We have time. But it's never been so easy to talk on a C-level about workspace. Everybody, it's one of the top three concerns right now, is what the hell do I do with all the space? And I have some examples, like I live in Basel, as you said, where we have two pharmaceutical companies. One of them is Roche. They've just built a huge high-rise with Herzog Demo, and now they're building the second one. It's actually in construction. Every day I see like a floor going up. And I met their architect, and he told me, you know, if I could, I would stop that building right now. We don't need so much space because we will have a completely different mix. We will do more shared desking. We will maybe not bring everybody to Basel who could work from elsewhere. We will maybe have, you know, two days from home and three days in the office. I don't need that much space. Nora Felbaum, CEO of Swiss furniture giant Vitra. Another mini masterclass at the Chiefs came courtesy of the head of the International Committee of the Red Cross, Peter Maurer, who's led the organisation since 2012. Maurer has overseen an historic budget increase, but the question of funding and donors remains highly complex, as he explains. I'm not overly convinced, you can imagine, of the accurate setup the international community is in at the present moment in terms of big power diplomacy and the international system and the multilateral system. I think we have too many impatient ideological operators who don't know how to deal with these conflicts. They throw words at others instead of trying to solve problems. And I just got a little bit of a a glimpse again last week. I mean, half of Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso are under control of Islamic State or Al-Qaeda-based groupings. And the operators of the international system just call them terrorists and throw bombs at them. But where they throw bombs, there is civilian population. And not all of them 
are basically committed to terrorist activities. But having a more differentiated view is extremely difficult today in the international system where slogans prevail, patience is under-resourced, and persistence diplomacy to bring states together in order to solve some of these problems are not pursued with sufficient determination. And I think that is what is really lacking in the system. Big showcasing statements each and every day, and I'm sick and tired, as most of the people are, of these statements, and insufficient persistence to nudge, to compromise, when you can't really win over your adversaries. You mentioned a, a two billion ish Swiss franc budget. When you talk about, okay, let's say being in the region of Niger and Mali, of course, one of our neighbors is very active in that region as well. It brings me to then funding. And if, of course, we've seen a crisis of funding with one of your neighbors, another neighbor in Geneva, a very different organization. But is funding difficult for the ICRC or do you feel it is quite locked because of, I would imagine, the state partners that you have? Or is, like everything, is it always a bit of a struggle when it comes to year end? It is always a little bit of a struggle. Most of the funding comes from industrialized OECD countries. All of these countries have run major public debt and use their public debt as an argument to delay payments on development aid, humanitarian assistance, and so on. So we have to face reality. The basic economic situation is not great at the present moment in OECD space, in the world economy, in the emerging economies, which have an ability to support and to pay for our organization. And that's the reason why it has become a little bit more difficult. But I don't want to over-dramatize. I think at the present moment, I see the pressure on budget, first and foremost, as an opportunity in organizational terms to get even another sort of efforts of leaner structures, simpler ways of doings, devolution of responsibilities and power to the field level, not overcomplicating what we may have overcomplicated at some times. And so at the present moment, I would say we are still cautiously optimistic that with a little bit of cut we can maintain or even enlarge services. So I have ordered a 10% cut at headquarters with the perspective of increasing field budgets by 5% next year. That's basically what we are working at at the present moment. I had actually was going to ask you a question about this because I saw that it had come out yesterday on Swiss Radio that you were struggling to meet your annual budget. At the same time, we have clearly there's a greater demand for aid around the world. How do you deal with this issue? Of, is it donors? Is it funders? What's going on with them? Why are we seeing them pull back? And this is, of course, not just a Red Cross problem. I mean, this is a World Health Organization, quite famously, and other organizations. And the ambassador talked earlier about how you know we've seen this sort of dissolution of support for multilateral organizations. How are you going to make that work? And, and maybe can you explain why that's happening? And is there's a way to change that? I have tried over the last uh, couple of years to take a little bit of a distinctly different way with the ICRC on approaching donors and arguing what kind of money we need. I think we are in a work line 
where there will never be enough money. So we will always struggle. And therefore, I think we made a distinct effort and what you saw yesterday was more of the tip of the iceberg of a more structural problem. I think we have to be clearer in our heads what are incompressible risks which we cannot finance differently but by grants and philanthropic money that is given to us and we transform into social services for people. But a lot of things which happen and the need landscape at which we look at are not incompressible risks. They can be framed and financed in a different way. And I'm really convinced that the donor community as well as organization like mine need to have a serious discussion on how we move on the one side with a traditional model of transforming money into services and then also in raising capital and social capital which has impact for people. And what strikes me when I listen to victims, to beneficiaries of our operations, to governments, to non-state armed groups in the world, everybody at the end of the day comes with the same message. We don't want handouts. We want support for life-sustaining, autonomous lives that people want to live even in the most difficult circumstances. And we have been bad on this. And I have been quite outspoken that we have been bad. And I think the response is not continuously asking for the money which is not coming and will never come. The answer is finding new models of sustaining lives and livelihoods of people so that they get more autonomous and less dependent. And I think that's the big challenge and we have to reorient some of our organizations also and to recast and reboot them, not to have them in the continuous same reflexes of asking for the same problem next year, the same amount of money, because this is disempowering the donor community and it is disempowering those who are at the recipient end. That's the reason why we started to tweak around with new financial instruments, humanitarian impact bond to create physical rehabilitation centers. And we will continue on that line. And I think it is eminently important that we do look at new forms of financing global public goods and needs, but not just to continue dependencies, but to lift people out of dependency the head of the International Committee of the Red Cross, Peter Maurer. After lunch on the Savretta House Terrace and some all-important swapping of business cards was done, we were joined by the director of a global franchise as significantly impacted by the curtailment of live, in-person events as any. Art Basel's Mark Spiegler took us through his own personal timeline of how the pandemic has shifted the course of his business. On the 19th of January, I left Hong Kong having spent a week there to explore whether or not the political unrest that had been unrolling for at least six months was going to derail our fair, was going to be so disruptive that it didn't make sense. And I, I left incredibly optimistic because I had the sense that things were calmer, that the city was very much behind us, that the region was very much behind us, and we had the data to prove it. And within the space of two weeks, 
COVID-19 had caused us to cancel the fair in Hong Kong, which would have taken place only five weeks later. And at the time, it's, I mean, from a leadership process, it's very interesting because you're dealing with a constantly changing set of circumstances, information, you know, first you realize that schools are shut down, but they're keeping the convention center open. Then you realize that you're not sure if you can get the walls into the harbor because medical and food supplies are being given priority. Then you realize that certain countries are shutting down all flights to Hong Kong. You know, so one day after another, it just became logistically more and more impossible. And, you know, the whole art world is looking at you and saying, why are you doing this? Why haven't you canceled yet? And yet others are looking at you and saying, how can you cancel this fair? It's so important. You're going to put galleries out of business. Artists will go into poverty. It's irresponsible to think about canceling this. And I think there's this, you can't win. But we dragged out the process to the point where it became clear that there was no other option. And for some people, it seemed eternal. All that was only, the whole thing was a couple of weeks. And then, you know, we did that. And then foolishly enough, I came up here on vacation mid-February thinking, okay, this is behind us. We've survived this ordeal. And then, of course, by early March, you know, the virus was sweeping into Europe. And I went to New York for the Armory show in early March, and already Northern Italy was starting to shut down. And in New York, I don't know if any of you were there in early March, everybody was sort of, oh, look, it's the funny handshake time. Do we do this? Do we do that? And I said, you know, this is going to be a much bigger thing than you realize. And, and no one took it very seriously. I told everyone they should bow out of respect and against the anti-Asian sentiment that was going on at the time. But by the time I left a week later, New York had declared a state of emergency around the virus. And of course, we all know what happened in New York and the United States. But still, at the time that I left, we were still planning to do Art Basel in June, as we always have. Two weeks later, with travel between the United States and Europe having been shut down unilaterally by Donald Trump and other issues arising within Europe, we postponed to September and we said, okay, by then it should be okay. The, you know, maybe the warm weather will make things better. Obviously that didn't play out. But we postponed to September and again, we had the same sort of arc of waiting and seeing and watching things develop and hearing quite a loud set of voices from our region. And again, you know, when we were coming up to early June and the question was, should you move forward with September or not? There were the people from America thought we were completely insane to even think about it. And yet I had people from Germany saying, we must go on, we must battle on, we must do this. Because of course, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit. If you're sitting here in this room with no one wearing masks and no one having to wear masks, it's a very different thing than if you're living in New York or other states where you have, really, it's considered socially offensive to be outside without a mask, you know? That's sort of the difficulty of the situation. If you're a global brand the way we are, is that we're trying to deal with a very global range of perspectives. And we're trying to make decisions that make sense to people who are living more so than ever in completely different realities. Art Basel's Mark Spiegler. The final guest of the day was Kostas Spakoyanis, the mayor of Athens, who's overseeing a city well and truly on the rise. Heating up the day's discussion in true Mediterranean style, Mr Bakoyanis fielded questions from guests and gave us the inside track on how best to implement change and on the importance of communication. First of all, I've learned very early in life that I'm not one to offer any advice to anyone. But here is my experience. I began as a small town mayor in my hometown of Carpenisi, which is high up in the mountains in central Greece. It's something similar to that, to what we see outside our windows. I was 32 years old at the time. Our team was 25, 26 years old. 
Basically, the people of Kapenisi went crazy one Sunday, and they said, we're going to give the keys to the children. I think alcohol was involved as well. I mean, there's no other explanation. But anyway, to make a long story short, we were there, and they had to live with us. And we decided that we wanted to change the city center, completely. We revamped the whole center. We changed the mobility, parking, sidewalks, everything, in two or three years. You cannot imagine, and I'm being very careful about the words I use, the abuse that I was getting for two and a half years, literally. And then the election came, and they gave me 75%. And I would see them outside the ballots and say, why are you voting for me? You, you, you. <laughs> Remember what you were saying about me? And they were like, yeah, 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 Costa, yeah, but you were right. And this is something, joking aside, that we have seen in all similar interventions in the history of Athens as well. At the beginning, people are very, very angry. They're very, very angry and they're justifiably angry. But suddenly one guy comes up and says, ah, you have to change the way you live. Slowly, slowly, when their project is completed, they like what they see. They appreciate the change in their quality of lives. So the only thing I would say is, you know, like the song, time is on your side. That's it. You have no other ally. Okay. One question from... I would Germany. like to catch up with a question in the same direction. I come from Germany. Uh, Tübingen is a small city, uh, but we have the most famous mayor of Germany. It's called Boris Palmer, a green mayor. He's always in the TV, in talk shows, and he is very famous because of his provocating all the time against the central policy of Germany. And even the Green Party doesn't agree in the most of the things what he is talking. And he really, he's writing books and is very, very famous. And he has a very famous social media channel on Facebook with uh, every post has hundreds of interactions and pro and contra is a really hard discussion all the time. So I would like to know how you are going on in communicating with your citizens. Do you also use social media or how do you bring your ideas to the citizens? I use every channel that's available. Whether it's walking down the sidewalk, going to a coffee shop, going on Instagram or on Facebook or going on TV. I do whatever I can. Not only because I want my message to get to the citizens, but because I want the message of the citizens to get to me. Because the worst thing that can happen in my job is when you grow deaf. That's a moment before failure. But as a team, we're disciplined. We only talk about our job. So you will never hear me in Greece offering my opinion about Greek-Turkish relations. I have an opinion, but it's not my job to offer it. You will never ever hear me talk about educational policy. I have an opinion about educational policy. I have four children, but you'll never hear me offer it. Because at the end of the day, it's about getting the job done. And it's not about talking, it's about doing. That was Kostas Bakoyanis, the mayor of Athens. And that's all for our live conference special of The Chiefs. Huge thanks to all our guests on the day, speakers and delegates alike, for their thoughts, energy and their very presence in San Moritz. Special thanks too to the wonderful Suvretta House and to our partners, UBS. The Chiefs is back at the same time next week. This episode was produced by Paige Reynolds and edited by David Stevens. I'm Tom Edwards. You've been listening to the live conference special of The Chiefs 
on Monocle 24.